It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We have a chance to ride out this Omicron wave without shutting down our country once again. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. We need to recognise that Russia is now calling the shots here. Mad in their sleaze with a divided party. A prime minister losing the support of his backbenchers and governing shambolically. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Ukrainians woke up to rocket fire in Kyiv as the Russian military moved closer to taking the capital. As the fighting got fiercer, so did the sanctions. Boris Johnson unveiled Britain's biggest ever package against Russia, targeting the country's banks, billionaires and national airline. The Prime Minister set out his goals. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day and week by by week. Russia has banned British airlines in response. The US and European Union have also set out sanctions targeting Russia's banks and access to key technologies. Dozens of people have been killed in the conflict so far and Europe is bracing for an exodus of more than a million refugees from Ukraine, especially in neighbouring countries, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia and Romania. So this is the subject of our special programme today uh, on Ukraine. Jeremy Shapiro from the European Council on Foreign Relations will be joining me on on how Europe plans to deal with the biggest conflict since World War II and Bloomberg's UK reporter Lizzie Burden on the force of British sanctions. First, though, let's go live to Moscow, uh, where we speak to Bloomberg's Tony Halpin. Tony, just uh, first of all, the latest on the attacks. This is swift, uh, bloody. It's the second day now of conflict. Yes, there continue to be reports of Russian forces uh, advancing closer to the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, where they're meeting what Ukraine says is stiff resistance to their advance. President Zelensky said that, in fact, the military was so far present- preventing Russia from achieving its objectives and said that eventually Russia would have to talk to them one way or the other, and the sooner the better in order to reduce Russian losses. Um, there have been reports of explosions uh, in Kiev this morning and uh, heavy fighting uh, along the riverbanks there. Meanwhile, there have been waves of protests around this military action, uh, including actually in Russia. How do the public feel now about this invasion by Putin? It's very difficult to uh, protest in Russia. The rules, uh, restrictions are very strict here and the Russian police um, uh, don't mind at all arresting people that they think are protesting illegally. But Russians have taken to the streets. They have shown uh, that they're unhappy about um, this invasion. And I think many Russians do feel uncomfortable, even those who are not protesting in the streets, that they find their country at war with Ukraine, which is not only a neighboring state, but very close to them culturally and historically. 
What do you think is Putin's ultimate ambition? I mean, in some ways, he's been quite clear in the various speeches, uh, you know, in retrospect that, that this military action was coming. But where do we go from here? Is it about replacing the government in Kiev? I think it's a good idea to take Putin at his word. I mean, he's been very clear that his intention in this operation is, as he puts it, to demilitarize Ukraine and to replace the Ukrainian leadership with one that's much more sympathetic to Moscow. So the logic from that is that uh, Russian forces will try to get to Kiev to topple the government and to install somebody that Russia considers more friendly to them and that will somehow be capable of uh, controlling the country in Moscow's interest. It's very difficult to see how that can actually happen in real life, though, because Ukrainians clearly are very unhappy about the fact that Russia has invaded. And the idea of an occupation force running their lives is simply unconscionable for many of them. Do you think that there is a risk of Russia turning off the oil and gas pipes to Europe as, you know, another step in this military uh, conflict? That has been the concern that the UK, that Europe are dependent on exports. And it's not just in the energy sector. It's also the wheat and corn that Russia and Ukraine export. Yes, uh, even at the depths of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West, um, Russian energy was never switched off. It continuously uh, was supplied to Europe, not least because then Moscow needed the money. And Moscow still needs the money, despite the fact that their economy is now much stronger. And uh, there are signs even, in fact, that uh, European gas purchases from Russia have gone up in the last day or so, uh, now that the situation with uh, sanctions and energy is a bit clearer. So I think it's unlikely that they will switch off any energy supplies. Tony, Tony Halpin, thank you so much for being with me live from Moscow. Bloomberg's Tony Halpin on the latest on Ukraine. Well, earlier I was speaking to Simon Fraser, who previously served as Permanent Secretary at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, also the head of the UK's diplomatic service, so Britain's most senior diplomat. He's now co-founder and managing partner at Flint. I asked him for an assessment now of the situation. Well, it is indeed a very dangerous moment. It is basically the rewriting of the security system that we've known in Europe since the end of the Cold War, by unilaterally by uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, a, a dictator in Russia who is uh, setting out on this course of action. We don't know what his objective is, but it does look as if his intention is to take Kiev, topple the government, install some sort of puppet government. The interesting question after that is, Does he have further ambitions in terms of the occupation of the whole of the country? Will he withdraw a little bit? What will the settlement be? But but either way, the long-term issue is there can be no acceptance of this on the part of other countries in Europe and the United States. So this is a structural uh, standoff that he's establishing, uh, which is going to have very long-lasting consequences. Okay, what does that mean? Does it mean arming the countries around Ukraine? Um, Surely there's no idea of an actual conflict between NATO and Russia. Well, first of all, it means imposing and maintaining very strong sanctions, as we've been discussing, both economic, political, diplomatic and others. Secondly, it does mean looking at uh, how you support the Ukrainian opposition, which will continue, and the extent to which you uh, can effectively do that. And thirdly, it does also mean looking very closely at the security of other countries in the region. There's no reason necessary to expect that Putin will stop with Ukraine. What is his longer-term ambition? Mm. Uh, And in particular, 
uh, we are going to have to look at the deployment of forces in NATO members, the Baltic states and others, who are rightly very concerned about the implications of this for their future security. So these are big, long-term questions that the West collectively needs to address in a more effective way than we've been working together in recent years. What uh, impact with, will the sanctions have, uh, short and medium term? Are they really enough? Banks targeted, yes, but not the energy market, for example, not SWIFT. So, you know, th there are still other measures that could be taken. How would you describe the level of sanction now from well, the West? I think the initial sanctions packages earlier this week were, um, certainly the British one was uh, undershot considerably, but I do think in the undershot last... Undershot is quite uh, generous. I said undershot considerably, but, but the point is in the last 24 hours, uh, I think uh, the coordination has been better. The packages are more uh, impressive and effective, but they're not going to stop Putin doing what he's decided to do. So what is the objective? The objective is to impose a price on that, a long-term price on Russia uh, as the, for the, as the consequences of this action and to deter future action. And I think you will see further ramping up of these measures over time. As you say, there are one or two headline things like SWIFT, which remain still to be discussed. But overall, significant progress has been made in the last day or so. OK, that was Simon Fraser there uh, talking about the security implications, the threat to Europe, uh, formerly the head of the UK Diplomatic Service, Britain's most senior uh, diplomat. Uh, now, Andrew Gilmore was also my guest on radio this morning, executive director of the Berghoff Foundation, and again, a former UN Assistant Secretary General for Human Rights. Now, he spoke to me about the impending humanitarian crisis, and again, why the sanctions against Russia simply won't be effective. Well, having looked at them quite carefully, they do not seem terribly strong to me, and they would need to be stronger. To, I mean, let, but let us be realistic. No, no sort of sanctions is going to be a game changer now. There is no jugular to, to go for. It, it was important to signal before the war started that the West was ready to impose very serious sanctions as a form of deterrence, but that hasn't now worked. And one cannot imagine, I mean, one should not be under the illusion that now these sanctions are going to say, make Putin say, hey, chaps, we're going to call this off and, and back home we go. That they're not going to reverse that, but it's essentially, there isn't that much more other than providing as much assistance as possible to whatever Ukrainian resistance there is, and also the Ukraine's neighbors to ensure that, that they, are, they have the capacity to, to resist any further mm. push by Russia. Does that mean sending weapons to Ukraine, continuing to do that? The UK has sent uh, weapons, defensive weapons, as they're known, um, to Ukraine, but surely that can't be possible with Russian um, you know, boots in Ukraine. And... Uh, yeah, what, what is your view on, on arming that resistance? Well, how can we not arm them? I mean, it, it would be incredibly hypocritical to say we support the resistance and then not to arm them. But, um, they, they, I mean, Russia doesn't control the whole of Ukraine. It probably never will control the whole of Ukraine, and it, and it won't even seek to. So it, it will, there will still be certainly means of uh, providing assistance to the Ukrainians, both military uh and humanitarian. In terms of support, then, um, obviously Europe uh, is concerned about um, major flights of, of, of people from Ukraine, uh, a refugee crisis, effectively. Um, how concerned are you about that and what can be done to sort of alleviate that, that pressure and that suffering? I, I'm absolutely concerned about that. And by the way, the knock-on effects are 
are huge, not just that this will be the biggest humanitarian crisis in Europe since the 1990s with the, the, the former Yugoslavia wars there, which were, were vast in terms of humanitarian consequences. But this will have, let us not forget that around the world at the moment, there are huge famines and humanitarian crises in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Ethiopia, really unprecedented levels of, of, of suffering there. Well, what is essential is that Europe and the United States, when they give the assistance that it will be required to help the Ukrainians, that they don't do it at the expense, they don't do that assistance at the expense of providing assistance to these other desperate populations in Afghanistan, Yemen and Ethiopia. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Britain has unleashed its largest ever sanctions package against Russia, targeting its banks and oligarchs. Boris Johnson has also committed to provide further UK support to Ukraine in the coming days. He even talked about legislating on the long-stymied register of beneficial owners to lift the veil on foreign property ownership here in Britain, which has, of course, been seen as something of a haven for Russian oligarchs. Joining us now is Bloomberg's UK economy reporter Lizzie Burton. Is this new set of sanctions, Lizzie, really strong enough? Well, the government's last set of sanctions on Russia was criticised as meaningless, not just by the opposition Labour Party, but also by some of Boris Johnson's own Conservative MPs and city executives. So now he's unveiled this new set of sanctions. The government says are the toughest set of sanctions Britain's ever imposed, and they involve an asset freeze against all major Russian banks. But while Johnson said that he wants to go even further by banning Russian access to SWIFT, the international payment system, to do that, he's going to need the cooperation of other Western countries like Germany, which is not getting on board at the moment. And on top of that, there's always the risk that these measures will backfire in some way, given just how closely the city's courted emerging Russian wealth since the end of the Cold War. Meanwhile, the invasion has meant that energy prices have jumped and there's also a worry about a disruption to agriculture. Ukraine and Russia are major wheat and corn exporters. This will affect prices here in the UK with Britons already deeply concerned about the rising cost of living. Yeah, and it's hard to think of a worse time to pile pressure on household finances in Britain, even though the UK isn't as directly reliant as Germany on Russian gas. This will heat up competition for liquefied natural gas. That will have a knock-on effect on energy-intensive industries like steel manufacturing. And Investec says that it could lift the energy price cap by 50% in October on top of the 54% in April. Remember, we already thought that was eye-watering. So that will intensify the political crisis. And it also adds to the Bank of England's headache because at the same time as you've got surging inflation, you've also got the hit to consumer confidence, which may hold back growth. So a supersized March rate hike is looking less and less likely. 
Okay, Lizzie, thank you so much for being with me. Bloomberg's UK economy reporter then on the size and the effectiveness of Britain's sanctions against Russia. Well, as uncertainty reigns about how the conflict will evolve, it's clear that sanctions have not been enough to deter Vladimir Putin. The US is sending more troops to Europe and NATO is boosting its presence near Ukraine's border. But we don't expect to see direct engagement between NATO and Russia. Joining me now is Jeremy Shapiro, who is Research Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Jeremy, um, Lots of concern about the security threat to Europe, that this is perhaps the worst crisis since World War Two. How would you explain the, the threat and, and how Europe faces it? The threat is indeed uh, very grave, much graver than it was last week. Um, but I think it's important to understand that for better or for worse, NATO decided not to defend Ukraine. That doesn't mean that it's incapable or unwilling to defend its own members. And I think the president of the United States and the various NATO leaders have been very clear that that is a very, very different line. And I think it's quite unlikely that Russia will even attempt to cross it. Okay. Could we then see a wider war in Europe? Uh, War has a dynamic of its own, I'm told. Uh, If we're seeing a buildup of uh, NATO troops and, and weaponry and so on in the countries just around Ukraine, bordering Ukraine... That obviously is is also, you know, an escalation in itself. Absolutely, I think inadvertent escalation is definitely a uh, a real risk, and I think principally that Russia will decide that the buildup of uh, NATO forces in in Eastern Europe and the various sanctions that are being imposed on it, with the intent of crippling the Russian economy or even changing the Russian regime. Uh, are a threat and that they will feel like they have to respond. Uh, And so if that's not NATO's intention, they should be quite careful about that. Is Putin going to end up getting at least one of his aims, which is to uh, cool rapprochement of countries that were close to Russia or within the Russian sphere? Is he going to win on that front? In the short term, it certainly seems like he is. He had already, to a large degree, won on that front. Uh, So it's not clear why this invasion was fully necessary. Uh, But uh, I do think that it's it's very clear to countries that are outside of NATO that uh, that any effort to get too close to the West, to the EU or to NATO, will uh, encourage a very strong Russian response that is not likely to be effectively countered by the West. How effective do you think the sanctions will be from Western allies against Russia? I think that they can be fairly effective at damaging the Russian economy, but I'm not exactly sure what what aim beyond that they're expected to achieve. They're clearly, as you mentioned, not going to deter Russia. They're not going to reverse this invasion. They're not going to uh, really change the decision calculus of the Russian regime at all. So it seems as if The sanctions are more an effort within the West to demonstrate to themselves that they are doing something and that they have a response to this outrage. It's not just the West, though. Japan has joined and so too has Taiwan in terms of the sanctions. How significant is that when obviously China's role on the global stage and and what it thinks about Putin is also pretty key? That's an excellent point, and uh, I think you're right to to highlight that this isn't really a 
a Western uh, Russia struggle anymore. It is more of a sort of democratic authoritarian struggle that involves democratic allies in Asia as well as it involves uh, Russia's key ally in Asia, China. And I think that that is where the battle lines seem to be hardening these days. Hmm. Um, Western allies have, though, been powerless to stop this invasion. So are there, in your mind, any doubts about the effectiveness of NATO? Does this kind of challenge uh, reinvigorate NATO that was, um, you know, downplayed, downgraded by the previous US president, uh, that many European allies were worried about that, President Trump's attitude to NATO, for example? Yes, I think nothing brings NATO together like Russian aggression. Uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin has done a lot for NATO unity in this invasion, even if he hasn't done very much for the world. Uh, I don't have much doubt in the credibility of NATO to stand up uh, for its members, um, but I can certainly understand why people are getting increasingly worried about it, and that's why, and that will have the function, I think, of reinforcing that deterrent, and we're already seeing that. It is, however, I think important to point out what you were just saying, which is that the United States is a little bit shakier on this than it used to be, and a Biden administration has a very clear policy, but a future Republican administration, particularly one under a future Donald Trump administration, would um, have a could conceivably have a quite different policy. Okay, so the concerns uh, remain around NATO. What about the idea of this being the sort of unraveling, the beginning of the unraveling of an autocrat that that with Putin having been in power 22 years, starting, you know, as, as everyone acknowledges, this incredibly dangerous war, that actually this could be a kind of step too far by, by Putin. Do you, do, would you agree with any of that? Um, well, one might hope. Uh, one does see some behaviour in in Putin in this crisis that is unusual and is out of character with him. And I think quite a few Western analysts are speculating that something has changed, something has even snapped in him, and he's become, well, at the very least, a lot weirder. Uh, But I have to say there is no sign of his grip uh, or the grip of his regime weakening on Russia or on his inner circle at all. Uh, we haven't seen even the high, the slightest hint of that. And so it's clear he would have to, if he is deteriorating, he would have to deteriorate a lot more before it has any political impact within Russia. Do you think this all results in just more defence spending across Europe? I mean, from Conservative MPs here in the UK, uh, the, the call to arms was sort of instant. I think what the Russians have certainly succeeded at doing is showing that there is still a great utility of military force in international politics. I'm not clear as to why Europeans needed to learn that lesson, but they certainly should have learned it from this episode. And the obvious um, implication of learning that lesson is that Europeans, like every other country in the world, need an effective military tool if they're going to be influential in international politics. And so I would think that uh, that, that lesson would be taken from this. Germany, uh, under Chancellor Olaf Scholz, will that be a lesson that he will adopt? You know, Germany's obviously been very reluctant, for example, to, to arm the, the Ukrainian resistance. Um, does that change it at all? A, it, it is a lesson that he should take. Uh, from this episode. Frankly, it is a lesson that German leaders should have taken from 
2014 or 2008 or 2003. Uh, so I'm reluctant to predict that they will take that lesson. Clearly, it is a difficult message in German domestic politics, but I think it is becoming so obvious that it must be becoming increasingly difficult to resist. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.